Welcome to this episode of the Revolution and Ideology Program. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. In this episode, we are going to be discussing basically Cheron, Mexico, and their efforts to abolish the police. Yeah, this one will be one of our shorter episodes. We just kind of want to give a quick shout out to this town in Mexico that dating back uh, almost a decade now, maybe even a a little bit before, uh, successfully overthrew its government, kicked out its police, and rid itself of crime, all without like all of the traditional means that we are taught, uh, well, here in the United States that we absolutely need, that the state supports us and so on and so forth, and that we need these enforcing classes to protect our freedoms, when in reality, in the case of this example here in Mexico, um, they actually got rid of all of those things and have achieved a level of democracy and quote-unquote freedom that we only, uh, I mean, we dream of in some cases here in the United States. For sure. So we think this example um, is really good, especially amid current conversations going pl- going on um, throughout various communities from Minneapolis to Seattle to Portland um, conversations regarding like policing and governance and and how we can maybe negotiate a way outside of well maybe not negotiate fight away it depends I guess on your perspective yeah. find a way outside of this constant state enforcement um, and Chara Mexico uh, has been doing it now for a little while it is in the Mexican state of Michoacan Excuse my pronunciation, um, but again, this this is not just inspired by current context. We use this in a class that we teach called Stateless Society, and um, if you want a super, super short version and with some good visuals, we also are inspired partially by actually a short Vice documentary called The Mexican Town that kicked out its politicians and its cops or something along those lines. That 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 video is back in 2018, and it might even like be show up in your like feed if if you're watching this. Uh, yeah, we'll po- we can post a link too. Yeah, it's super good. It's a super good short doc. But anyway, um, to get moving, um, Cheran is a predominantly Purapecha community, and that is an indigenous community of about 20,000 people, um, and it is surrounded uh, by the resource-rich mountain forests. And these forests are resource rich for perhaps somewhat minerals underneath them, but mostly for the lumber. It's mostly lumber that people are interested in in these mountainous forests in Michoacan. And if we fast forward through the history that, uh, again, I all too briefly just like mentioned before, to 2008, a mayoral race in this town was won by the Revolutionary Party candidate. And again, for those that don't know Mexican history, this 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 party, the PRI, uh, as we'll call it, had basically been winning most like uh, national and state elections in Mexico, basically dating back to the revolutionary period of the early 1900s. While it calls itself the Revolutionary Party, that's basically in name only. It had become the party, again, over the cent- over the past century, a party of corruption, a party of neoliberalism, a party of selling out to foreign governments, especially the United States, uh, especially a couple, especially Canada and some of the European countries. It is the party that, that really sold the country out with its NAFTA agreements in 1994. So even though it calls itself the Revolutionary Party, it's in name only. Um, and so a candidate that had been and basically part of the party that had been exploiting this region won again in 2008. A so-called narco government developed in this town, um, and it included like car- cartel like Sicarios, which are tied to illicit activity that increased substantially in this town starting in 2008. And it was tied to organized crime, and it became a more integral, integral part of the local politics and economic features of this town. Um, to explain that even more simplistically, government, capitalism, and even in this case, narco culture all synthesized to become basically like the leadership or the top of the proverbial pyramid in this town, all kind of like scratching each other's backs. Does that make sense, Nick? Yep, for sure. Okay. 
One of the things that they would also do, aside from kind of moving drugs through the town, is illegal logging started to take place, um, and it began to ravage the community's precious spiritual and material resources. The forest is literally part of the indigenous identity of, of Michoacan and the Purapecha people. The reason this is important is it's often misunderstood in, in modern conversations regarding indigenous rights, even here in the United States when we think about like Dakota Access Pipeline or what's going on with the Navajo Nation's water um, on their reservation. It's tar not, sands in uh, tar sands in Alberta, yeah. like yeah, like like Hawaii right now with the giant mm-hmm. telescope. I mean, like it's it's. Uh, I mean, what's lost is that. It's not just the loss of material resources and land dispossession, as has been the case for indigenous people for basically the last 500 years here in North and South America, but there is a identity attached to like the land that is beyond, again, just like what we would think here in Western civilization of the material. There is like trees have an intrinsic uh, quality that is not just paper or furniture or whatever, and it's attached to that indigenous identity. We have some short videos on our channel uh, regarding like natural democracy and circular beliefs and how indi- many indigenous peoples around the world connect to like the natural world on more, on on a more, well, on a deeper level than just like this is land that I can use to farm or to hunt. It's It's more than that. And so the illegal logging was not just like literally stealing trees as resources. It was stealing part of the Purapecha people themselves, part of who they were. I hope I explained that well, Um, but I think I'm going a little fast, but that's okay. Nearly 27,000 hectares of forest were destroyed um, starting in 2008, but it's more than just trees. When you destroy those trees, you're destroying the fauna, uh, other flora. Basically, the entire ecosystem is being destroyed, and and that ecosystem, as, uh, well, I, I would say most of us know, but maybe I don't think most of us know how the world works. It is an interconnected web of, like, systems, and if you even break one of those, like, little connecting webs, you're damaging an entire system. Right. We we in Western civilization have really lost our connection with the natural world and the circle of life, cue the Elton John song, but the Purapecha people and most indigenous people haven't. So it's not just like, again, that they're taking trees. By taking the trees, they are severely damaging the entire ecosystem of which the Purapecha people rely on. Okay. Eventually, the people do rise up in this town, and confrontations reveal that the loggers, they call them telemontes, um, were protected actually by the government agencies. So the logging is illegal. And when I say illegal, it's like this land was technically protected by the Mex, in theory, protected by the Mexican government for these indigenous people, and they allowed the logging to take place anyway, kind of like under the table or clandestine logging. Um, it's protected by the government agencies, enforced by the local police agencies, and the major organized crime syndicate um, basically are also kind of helping the police turn a blind eye to this, and the police will in turn turn a blind eye to the narcos or the narcotics they're running through the town. Um, and yeah, I mean, I said it earlier, they're scratching each other's backs here uh, while this illegal logging is taking place and drugs are being pushed through the community. The first members to begin to try and defend the forest were assassinated. They were assassinated. For lack of a better term, they were assassinated. They were actually murdered for trying to defend the forest. Um, Between 2008 and 2011 in this community, all community economic uh, uh, engagement basically required paying an extortion to the syndicate, while in this case, the police turned a blind eye. So it's it's like the mafia in this case, really. Like, you want to do business here? You're going to basically pay us off. Um, and, and that's basically what took place for the last three years under the leadership of this pre-mayor. That's, I want to go back to this mayor, this pre-mayor, that's pre, 
yeah, revolutionary party mayor. You know what I meant? Yeah. All right. Anyway. I mean, this is classic cartel behavior, right? Pay off local officials and government and so on. Um, and for these three years, if you did not pay off the crime syndicate or the police, or sometimes both, you would be subject to murder. There were numerous disappearances. There were numerous kidnappings. At least 50 people went missing, uh, over three years, which is a good amount of people in a town that's only about 20,000 strong. So 50 people to just kind of go missing and it's completely unanswered for, um, that's a big deal. The turning point takes place on April 15th of 2011. A well-organized and coordinated handful of women leaders, um, cue my long-winded speech on matrilinealism. We don't have time for that, but again, we have a video on what matrilinealism is in, in, in indigenous cultures and why women play wildly more important roles in these indigenous cultures rather than they do in Western civilization where we're still stuck with patriarchy. But yes, a well-organized and coordinated handful of women leaders um, with their children at their side attempted to actually detain the, the log loggers themselves and they're only armed with like picks, shovels, rocks, and like these loggers are kind of backed by both the police and um, the cartels, which are armed with weapons like real guns um and yet these women with their children are basically like detaining them with picks shovels and rocks um the loggers basically tried to uh the loggers that showed up later in their trucks tried to run these women over as they're kind of marching through the town 200 other members of the community come out to defend them again this is all back in um 2011 2011 and um Basically, these 200 community members are able to kind of take the trucks, seize the trucks. They light them on fire. I love that. They light these trucks on fire. They detain the loggers, again, pick shovels, rocks, and they tie them up in like these like indigenous shawls. They're called rebozos. And they basically just tie them up and, and like are holding them captive. Like this is like radical as hell, but I love it. Um, any thoughts so far, Nick? Nope. As you kind of love it all. All right. The local police lead the syndicate leaders to the detained loggers to like violently release them. So the police are like going with like syndicate leaders. So police and quote unquote gang members or like cartel members are going to try and like release these loggers. So it kind of, it's just reveals the corruption. In response, the community comes together even further and erected like these 300 bonfire barricades that they called uh, fogatas. And like they are, they're like bonfire barricades to try and keep the cops and the cartels out of freeing these corrupt loggers. Um, and it really thwarts these, their efforts. These fogatas eventually become symbols of the resistance in Cheran, and they become also later on the core meeting points for collective decision-making. So the fogat, like it's this, this, I mean, wow, we just, we talked about this in like a French Revolution episode, the public sphere. Well, for this indigenous community, these fogatas become like this public sphere of discourse in the community. Any yeah, thoughts? No, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Um, five checkpoints would be established by the community outside of town, and they're made basically by ditches filled with the leftover timber from the, uh, from the logging. Um, and this all takes place in a matter of days, like in days, like they've got like these bonfire community centers built. They've got these people detained, the police and the cartels, uh, really, they, they, they can't manage to, to accomplish anything they're trying to accomplish. And this is just by a, an unarmed community, an unarmed indigenous community in a town of 20,000. 
Once the multi-level corruption is slowly but surely revealed, Tehran immediately organized itself for self-determination. Once they realize, once they actually see it and, 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 and documents are uncovered by the people as they're kind of like raiding like these government buildings, it's truly revealed that the cops, cartels, and the illegal loggers are actually all kind of working together to control this town and exploit it for its resources. Once that's revealed, they begin to prepare for self-determination. What is self-determination? What does that even mean in, 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 the, in the case of a municipality? Because we know that Seattle dabbled with it just a few months ago. Um, we know that other towns in the United States have tried. So what are your thoughts? It's like the idea of the people themselves being able to determine and have power over what happens to them in their city. Without the state. The yep. state has to go. Mm-hmm. And this this we could go on and on, on and on and on about. But anyway, um, what they're going to do is try and return to a more traditional purapecha, so indigenous way of self-governance. Uh, we would call this, Nick and I, colloquially we call this like natural democracy but 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 they have their own terms for it and i don't want to give them my term for their government but mexican government and authorities eventually cut off to try and like basically like to 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 scare them um they cut off all cell phone television and radio service to this one town um again Charan in Michoacan, Mexico. And this is now coming from like the federal level back in Mexico City. So they're cutting off basically their ability to communicate with the outside world. Why would the state do this? To try to prevent them from getting any kind of support from the outside, which is really interesting when you think of it in the context like related to the Zapatistas, because one of the reasons the Zapatistas were so successful is because they had a global audience yeah. making use of technology. Don't spill the beans. We're going to get to the Zapatistas. Yep. They, they actually, the Zapatistas predate this by a by a wide margin, like 20 years. But we're going to do a whole episode on the Zapatistas again, probably our favorite movement of, of the 20th century. But anyway, okay. It actually backfires, though. What happens is because these poor Apeche people in their history, this idea of natural democracy and matrilinealism already had the systems in place for community organization. It is it is innate in indigenous cultures. Um, and, and so they didn't really need these things to create self-determination and eventually self-defense, as we'll get to here in a minute. During this time, a general council of 12 elders um, was elected democratically by the people, and later they were legally forced to be recognized by the governing body of Cheran Michoacan. So much so, and when, when I mean legally recognized, eventually the, the government of Mexico itself has to recognize in this town these 12 elders that have been elected. They name a commission to carry out all the logistical, social, and economic and political needs of the town. So each of these like places, like each of these industries, if we'll call them industries, I don't even know if we can call them industries, but each part of society has its own commission named by the elder. So again, kind of collectively working through, I mean, this even kind of reminds me a little bit of syndicalism in Mm -hmm. ways, right? Like it's a little bit syndicalist. And again, I hate using kind of like these modern terms for things that indigenous people have been doing for thousands of years. And we have just kind of like modernized them and named them and whatever. But that's, that's for a different episode. They formulate three demands of the government. They want safety, they want justice, and and here's key, reforestation. Again, this all began with illegal logging, illegal logging and their resistance to it, and then their uncovering of the corruption that was going on. So reforestation. And this is a quote, um, basically, for justice, security, and the restoration of our territory. That became the mantra of the community, and it's still the mantra through today as, uh, as we're recording here in 2020. Again, for justice, security, and the restoration of our territory. It's, uh, it's uh, posted all over the town. It's posted on their websites. It's on their uniforms for, like, the protection units. It's all there. 
it began a traditional and spiritual obligation of reforestation immediately. So immediately they seek to like conserve the territory around them. They, they conservation efforts, basically what we would call sustainability efforts with indigenous people need no education on. They live sustainably for thousands of years. Now they're getting to do it in this town on their own. Also, the town um, ends up being split into four barrios or neighborhoods. Um, and that organization is, is key. I am actually not going to try and pronounce the names of all four barrios, but you can kind of look them up anywhere. I do not want to butcher this. This is not Spanish. This is perpetua. This, so I, I would really butcher this language. So I'm not going to do that. Um, but each barrio ha still has fogatas in them. There are now 172 block communities in to total, and each Fogata meeting sends proposals to three representatives. Those representatives then meet together with the other representatives from the barrios, and there must always be at least one woman on these like representation teams. Um, and the barrio assemblies, at the barrio assemblies, and from there, they also take that a level up to community assemblies. I don't think I explained that. You got you get what I'm saying, Nick? Yeah, I got it. All right, all right. Well, we're, we're good then. During this time, the politicians uh, and police begin to exile themselves from the town, so they kind of just leave, um, in fear of revealing the collusion they have with the cartels and the illegal loggers. So once this be kind of come, be, becomes public knowledge, these other these other individuals just they leave, uh, especially again the politicians because they don't want to be connected to cartels and they don't want to be connected to illegal logging. So they, I mean, basically they use this control over the production of knowledge or crime to get these guys out. And without the police or politicians okay to do what they want to do, the cartels also kind of can't be there anymore either. So they basically kick them out. The community, when the police and politicians exile themselves, go on to seize the government offices to uncover more of the corruption records. They seize the police trucks. They seize the weaponry, of course. That's key to any revolutionary movement. Seize those weapons. Um, and then they create what are called voluntary rotations for patrol. And there's two different names for them. I'll try not to butcher them. The Ronda Comunitaria, which is called the Community Guard. That's the one that guards the community. And the Garda Bosques, which are basically the forest defenders. So you have two different policing agencies, but not policing in terms of enforcing things on the people. One is to protect the forest and one is to protect the people from the cartels and the police, like the actual police. They're, they have to create a guard to protect themselves from the police. They begin to construct their own symbols for what their, their new town is going to look like. They have their own flag. Again, you can find it on the Charan, like basically their own website, which they have. Um, they are, um, they basically create these, these, this, what do I call this? Mantra. We talk about it oftentimes in revolutionary movements. Poetic mantra. Uh, children of Mother Earth. Our songs, our prayers are rising up to the heavens that our dreams may be heard. My people have awoken. They've begun to light the fire. The seeds are growing. Hope is growing. Like this is... There's no like negativity there. There's not even like the violence of like fresh French revolutionary anthems. Or It's just basically we're awake now and we are going to start living the way we want to live, and that's what's going to provide us hope. And that hope will be in both, both like it will transfer down to future generations, but it's also spiritually transcendental. And I really love that about what we see here in Cheran. The council goes on to essentially re recruit outside legal expertise to basically find ways to exploit the Mexican constitution or Mexican law that allow communities with indigenous majorities to set up self-government. The Zapatistas, again, we've referenced them before. They had already been doing this in, in um, uh, Chiapas. 
So uh, the people of Tehran were able to do this as well. And eventually this case, the case for basically autonomy, and this is what so many, I'll say it, anarchists or indigenous peoples or people of all like different political, all across the political spectrum want this like municipal autonomy. Well, Tehran wins it in the Mexican Supreme Court. The case goes to the Supreme Court in 2014 and Tehran's provisional system and self-government was declared legal because of these. They were able to exploit parts of the Mexican constitution regarding indigenous autonomy. They win. And they are federally recognized legitimate autonomous community of Tehran now. As of May 27th, 2018 was like when we started doing some of this research on this, the Purapecha municipality of Tehran, Michoacan, named its third council of elders, the Consejo Mayor Consejo de Queris. Most importantly, here's the thing, especially when you look at other sources besides us, the documentaries, the numerous articles on them from like the Guardian, the LA Times, like there's so many articles on them. Most importantly, though, this town has no crime now. They have no government and no cops, but no crime. There were at least 600 murders in Tehran uh, before 2011, at least 600 documented murders. Since then, and sources vary, but most are around zero to one since the people took control of the town. Minor crimes still exist as they will in any society, but not murder, not rape, not being people being kidnapped and disappeared as happens in cartel towns. None of that has happened. There's still minor crimes. Most sources cite them as like alcohol related and they lead to what is called if you are caught doing something ridiculous while apparently you're on alcohol. Um, it is a brief internment and then community service. And, and that basically it's, it's not unlike a little bit of the United States, I guess if you caught drunk, like you go sober up and then you're forced to do community service, but like, that's it. Like, and that's enforced by the people. Not the cops, not some sort of like corrupt court system, but by the people themselves. Um, other things that are different in Tehran, besides not having cops or real politicians, you're not allowed to have political parties. And party politics is one of the most corrupt things you can have in a thing that calls itself a democracy. Like it's just out of control at this point. Uh, I don't even need, I'm preaching to the choir here. You're not allowed to electioneer, which essentially means there's like no campaigning. So let's say you want to be in some sort of, if you want to be one of the members of these advisory councils or one of these uh, three representatives from your body or your neighborhood, you're not allowed to like, there is no campaigning. There's no campaigning. In fact, oftentimes you might be elected without even wanting the position. And that happens in some of the documentaries we watched on Tehran. Like people have to like give up their jobs that are well-paying to work for the people, but they're willing to do it. Like I forget which one it was, but where the professor, a professor at a university is like, well, I can't be a professor for these next couple of years because the people elected me and I didn't really want it, but I'm going to do it. Even the tourists that go to Tehran, and there's a lot now that want to see this in action. They have lots of tourists. They enter town if they have anything that is politically affiliated uh, regarding Mexican politics, American politics, European politics, anything political must be covered up. You cannot be, you know, there, there's nothing. There's no partisanship there. No partisanship. We are all community, I guess, is, is would be a, one of the mantras that I just made up for, for Cheran. The town can vote in federal and state stuff if they want to. So if, if, if something in the larger state of Michoacan or something in the larger nation state of Mexico, if they want to partake in that, they can. Like if you're an individual and you feel like you want to vote for the president of Mexico in his next six-year term or whatever, uh, and they six-year terms in Mexico, but um, then you can do that. It's not like encouraged or discouraged. It's just like if you feel like you still need to partake in like the larger picture, fine. But most people really don't want to. For them, it's local politics that matter the most. 
Um, now, one thing that must be be noted, because of the way they were able to exploit in the Supreme Court case the indigenous provisions, they actually still do get two point five, approximately $2.5 million in federal and state funds from Michoacan and the government of Mexico in terms of like what they're owed as an indigenous community. The only reason I might consider this somewhat of a minus is if you are taking big government money in any amount, that does kind of bind you to some things that the state might want you to do. So if you want to know more about Chera in Mexico and how they've been able to kick out cops, kick out politicians, and create a community that was literally for the people, not just like, this isn't like, you know, whatever, like just, I, I don't even know what term I'm thinking of right now, but this isn't just pre preaching, like it actually, they live it. You can learn more through their own radio channel. It's called Radio Fogata, naturally. Um, and they have their own YouTube channel. Look it up, YouTube of Cheran or the Purapecha people. Like I said, Vice had a super awesome documentary on YouTube uh, that's only like five minutes long. There are articles about them um, on The Guardian, the LA Times. Um, yeah, I mean, just again, look them up, see what they're doing there. Um, it is an amazing, amazing example of what people power really means. Again, without the state's intervention, they kicked out the state and that's our example. 